Let's pray and then we'll get into today's message. Heavenly Father, we care because we're devoted to you. We want to know more of you. I ask God that your word would impact our hearts deeply. That as we look at your word, that you would speak and that you would change us in our minds and hearts for your glory. Amen. We're going through the book of Hebrews and in this series so far we've seen that uh, the writer portrays Christ as exalted. He is great. He is supreme. He is, he is the one who is better than. He is the, the final prophet, priest and king. He is the fulfillment of so many of the hopes of Israel in terms of their, their scriptures. Jesus is the all supreme one. And I'm going to read in summary of what we've covered so far, several passages, a few verses here and there, just to get that impression over again. Hebrews 1 verse 3 said, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then we saw... Jesus is exalted above the angels when we looked at Hebrews 1 verse 4 and onwards. And I'll read from verse 4 to verse 6. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And in Hebrews 1 verse 13, it says, To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? What magnificent words from God's own heart about Jesus, his son. And we've been exhorted not to neglect this great salvation of which Christ is the, the mediator, is the better word, the better message, the clear representation of who God is. So we saw in Hebrews 2, from verse 1 to 4, but I'll read from verse 2 to 4. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So the writer says, This Jesus brought this message of salvation, this revelation of God, which is the final and full and perfect one. You mustn't neglect it. How could we we'd be making a grievous mistake, a serious mistake, if we don't pay careful attention to this message and to this Savior, because he's the, he's the last one, he's the only one. We've seen that even though he was made temporarily a little lower than the angels and suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. He is risen and seated in glory. He has gone ahead of those who believe in him. In other words, Jesus the writer says he, he was only temporarily on earth with us, but now he's in glory, but he's come to lead the way to where he wants us to be with him. And so we saw Hebrews 2 verse 5 to 9, and I'll read Hebrews 2 verse 9. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. 
And there it even says to us that Jesus' crown of glory and honor is because of His suffering and His coming to earth. So that temporary time while He was on earth is actually won for Him this lasting glory and honor where He's been given accolades. He's been given standing from God the Father. In, in, in eternity, Jesus is now something to be worshipped because of what He's done. So we sing the song of the Lamb. Glory, worthy, honor to the Lamb of God. So up until now, the writer to the Hebrews has portrayed Christ in this sense of His exaltation, His supremacy. That's been the dominant picture, the divine exalted Son of God. But today, from the, the, the verses we're going to look at today, we encounter this dramatic shift. There's going to be a sudden change and we're going to focus a lot more on Jesus' suffering as a human being. And so the passage we're looking at today is Hebrews 2 verse 10 to 18. It's the rest of chapter 2 before we reach chapter 3. So we're looking at Hebrews 2 verse 10 to 18 and I'm going to read through that passage. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So that passage begins, verse 10, speaking about it was fitting that God would make the founder of salvation perfect through suffering. So it introduces the idea of Jesus' suffering. And in verse 18, it says again, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So it's bracketed in this idea of suffering. The writer explains that Jesus has been crowned with divine glory and honor precisely because he suffered death. And as we look at Hebrews 2 verse 10 to 18, we're going to see it is Jesus' incarnation which makes it possible for human beings to share in divine glory. It's because Jesus came to earth, because of Christmas, because God came and took on flesh that we are able ultimately to be saved, delivered and taken into glory. So let's take some time to work through these verses. Um, I mean, I already made a mistake in the reading of verse 17. It spoke of 
him being a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What mistake did I make is, I ran over that word propitiation as if you understood it. And you listened and many of you probably didn't really even know what's this big English word. I can't even pronounce. It's like a Malagasy word. It's got more syllables than it needs. Um, propitiation. Propitiation is what Jesus did for us when it comes to God's anger against sin. See, God is holy and He's always angry against sin. All sin is destructive. All sin separates man from God. Any of your sins, small or big, should incur the anger or the wrath of God because He is perfect, holy, righteous and just. So in His justice, He can't leave sin unpunished because sin is destructive. It's evil. It's, it's, it's everything God is not. And so God looks at sin and He doesn't smile upon it. And when we were in our sins, God couldn't smile upon us. He wants His righteous wrath should punish sin. But Jesus came and took sin upon Him. And so by receiving the punishment for sin, the wages of sin is death. So Jesus received the just punishment for sin. And in that sense, He turned the wrath of God away from us. Because by taking the sin away from us and putting it on himself, he puts the, the focus of God's anger for sin is on Jesus. And God's wrath is poured out, his punishment for sin is poured out on Jesus. And that's what propitiation means. So it's a very magnificent word, if you can say two superlatives in a row, very magnificent. It's bad English, but it's, it's an incredible word. It means God's wrath is no longer out there for those who are in Christ because he, Christ took away God's wrath. He absorbed it within Himself. He took the punishment for sin. So the wrath of God is turned away from us because of what Jesus did. So that's when I say it's worth looking deeper at Scripture. We shouldn't just run over the terms and not soak in them. So now we're going to do that, the next verses, the actual verses from verse 10. It was fitting that He, that's God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder, that is the author, captain and pioneer, or Jesus, it's the, He is the founder of our salvation. It was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let's point out some of the thoughts there. God is bringing many sons to glory. That's what He's doing. He's bringing people to glory. God doesn't want people in hell. He wants people in heaven. He doesn't want your life to fail. He wants your life to be on the victory podium. He wants you to be standing there getting accolades like Jesus did when He ascended. So here God is bringing many sons to glory. Do you sometimes feel like we are small, alone, despised as Christians in this world? So many people are not Christians. So many people condemn Christians for being narrow-minded and bigoted and blah, blah, blah. There's all this press out there that might make it unpopular to be a Christian. Well, guys, most of us haven't suffered persecution. 
none, none in this room have been sawn in half yet for the gospel. So, basically don't feel sorry for yourself. But if you do, you should just look at this and realize, actually, when the ages are done, when time reaches its end, the company of believers, when gathered together, like a church meeting, a corporate assembly of the body of Christ, when the church gathers in heaven for the wedding feast of the Lamb, it is not going to be a small party. There are going to be countless thousands upon thousands and hundreds of millions and billions of believers standing together in victory. So God is bringing many sons to glory. And it was fitting. What does that mean? It was right and necessary, appropriate, correct, right and necessary that Jesus as the pioneer of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. So the writer is going to explore this, I'm going to explore this idea with you that Jesus had to become a human being and he had to suffer in order to be our saviour. It was right and necessary that he was made perfect through suffering. Well, wasn't he perfect already? I mean, how can you take the perfect God, perfect son, sinless, and then make him perfect? Now, the word perfect here doesn't mean he was imperfect before. The idea that he was made perfect through suffering does not mean that Jesus as the Son of God, as Emmanuel, God with us, was anything less than perfect. Rather, it means he was made complete, adequate, and effective. So, Jesus through suffering was made complete, adequate, and effective to be our Savior, to be the pioneer of our salvation. By becoming human, Jesus was enabled to represent us. He was able to become our high priest. A high priest has to come from amongst the people to represent the people to God. And in order for us to be like saved, we needed a perfect representation before God. We needed a representative who was able to stand for us in the covenant between man and God and to represent us well. Adam failed. Adam was the first man to stand for mankind and he failed. But by becoming human, Jesus was enabled to represent us as our high priest. He was also to represent us as a human in paying our sin debt. So there's two things that he's doing. He's, he's representing us as a high priest, but he's also coming as, a, as the one who will pay the price and die to overcome death. And so he comes as this prophet who speaks and reveals God. He reveals, like God's word reveals God. It's not laws and rules that God wants you to follow. It's him that he wants you to know. So through God's Word, even in the Old Testament, we should learn about God's ways from His Word, not just rules. But Jesus comes as the perfect Word of God. The Word became flesh. He dwelt among us. He, he revealed God to us. So he said he's, he's the prophet who speaks, but then He's the priest. And He's also the King who came and conquered, came and conquered death so that we would be set free from slavery to death. By paying the price 
of death for our sin. So, in the covenant God made with humanity, Adam failed to uphold our end of the agreement. We needed a better Adam who would, for us, as one of us, make atonement for our sin and uphold the covenant for us. So the writer continues in Hebrews 2 verse 11 to 13. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Well, I struggled with that phrasing in the ESV. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's verse 11. It's like, what does that really mean? So I went to look at a different translation, and the NIV makes it much clearer. The NIV says, both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. That's what it means, have one source. That word source is in the sense of lineage or genealogy. It's like, who is your father? We have one father, the same father. So both he who, 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 who sanctifies um, and those who are being sanctified, both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are being made holy, that's us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them as brothers and sisters. And the statements followed up with a reference to an indisputably messianic psalm, Psalm 22. I don't know if you know Psalm 22, it's the one that describes, uh, it's David who writes it and he's been persecuted and he writes under the unction of the Holy Spirit, one of the most profound psalms because he's pouring out his heart and describing his situation but what he does inadvertently and supernaturally is he writes prophetically about the crucifixion and he actually describes the events that happen at Jesus' crucifixion thousands of years before they happen. It's unbelievable. It's mind-blowing if you're, a, if you're just a, a rational atheist. You have to chew on that and figure out how on earth did that happen. That a guy could write and describe what happened to Jesus on the cross centuries before it happens. So, he's writing, the writer to the Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 22. I want you to hear it because it makes sense of what he's saying. So I'm going to read Psalm 22 now. For the director of music to the tune of the Doe of the Morning. I guess it's a nice top ten hit at the time. A Psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I just love the way scripture just changes the tone there. It was the doe of the morning. It sounded like it was going to be a nice song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. 
Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions that tear their prey open, their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart has turned to wax, it has melted within me, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, I don't even know what that is. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, you lay me in the dust of death, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me, they pierce my hands and feet. All my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me. They, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This is just what happened when Jesus was crucified. In fact, this didn't happen to David. I don't know what he was smoking when he wrote this song. Because he was imagining this stuff. He was saying, my life is so bad, everyone's against me. My hands and my feet are pierced and they're dividing my clothes with lots. It's like truly inspired by God, truly inspired by God, that you could write something that's not even happening to you just as you're pouring out poetry about the anguish of your soul. That's what David was doing, pouring out his heart. And God says, you think your life is hard. My son is going to go through that life. My son is going to experience literally those things that you are writing about how hard your life is. My son is going to pay for your sin, he's going to suffer like no one suffered. So this song is messianic, and the writer to the Hebrews quotes from it. Jesus became a man to die, and in dying he paid the sin debt of mankind. So now let's go back to Hebrews. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Since therefore... The children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's what Jesus came to do. So I see him as our high priest, our mediator, but I see him also as this one who came as our substitute not just to pay our sin debt to God, but to defeat the devil. So I see him as a, a king of glory. I see him coming to triumph over his enemies. And how he did it was he blindsided the devil. The devil never realized that in Jesus dying, Jesus was going to take all authority back for humankind. And the victory that the devil got over Adam was being reversed by the second Adam. And Jesus came as a king to defeat the devil. And he came and he laid down his life as a servant king. He surrendered. No one took it from him. He laid it down in order to win this fight. He died in order that we could live. But he rose again to demonstrate that he had victory over death. So here we see our conquering king. But what I also see in this verse, verse 14 and verse 15... He came, this is verse 15, He came to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you know that the sin debt holds everyone captive? The fear of death. Why the fear of death? It's about relationship with God. There are only two ways a man can die. This is what Martin Lloyd-Jones preached once. One profound sermon he preached. 
There are only two ways a man can die. You either die in your sins or you die in Christ. I am crucified with Christ, therefore I no longer live. The life I live now, I live by faith in Him. So I died to myself, I, I am in Christ. That's why we go into baptism. We are buried with Him so we can be resurrected with Him. So I, I've, I'm in Christ. The other alternative for your life is you remain in your sins. And if you remain in sin, in other words, if you never become a Christian, never turn away from your sin, never believe that Jesus took your sin upon Him, you keep your sin upon yourself, you die in your sins. Now when you die in your sins, the only thing that remains for you is to face judgment for sin. And so there is this terrified fear in every human being about death because they deep inside know that they will have to give an account for their own failure, their own sin. They're going to die, they're going to be judged. Somewhere deep in this person they know, every person knows they're going to face judgment. And there's this awful and terrifying fear of being judged and cast out, of being found guilty of all that we know we are guilty of, and some more. So, the fear is that you're going to be found out to be actually guilty of the things you know you're guilty of. I don't know if when you first got into trouble as a kid, it's an awful feeling to know that you're being found out. Once your parent has caught you, or the policeman, depending on where it happens, and you have been found out for being in the wrong. It's a horrible feeling to be found out and to know you're facing judgment. And underneath that you're going to be cast out, you're going to be rejected by God. We are lifelong slaves to this fear until Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, He wants to set you free from this fear. Some Christians aren't fully free of it yet. They, they will be. His work will be accomplished. But the degree to which you understand His work and realize it can actually change the way you live your life. You realize you're free. Some, some people are still sitting in the prison when the prison door is wide open. But lifelong slaves to this fear. Psychologists and people who study human nature, they've said that the fear of death is actually almost like the underlying fear for all other fears. I would say to you, the fear of being found out, of being discovered to be a fraud, then being socially rejected, is the same fear. It's the slavery behind peer pressure. It's the power behind families manipulating family members with the threat of being shamed or having been brought to shame. It is the fear that you'll no longer have a place to belong, a place where you're accepted. There's this fear of rejection, the fear of being cast out, pushed away, shamed and rejected because you're not adequate, because you're not worthy, because you're not good enough, because you messed up. Now you know when you die, that's the fear you're going to face God's view of you messing up. But even in this life, as a kind of a small reflection of that kind of fear, we fear being found out by somebody. You who are sinning here with your habitual sin, if you're in that sin, you're terrified. What if someone finds out that I'm having an affair? What if someone finds out that I've been stealing? What if someone finds out that I lie? 
regularly and don't tell the truth to people. It's a horrible place to exist because you're in constant fear of being discovered to be a fraud. And you're afraid that you're going to be rejected and kicked out. And they're actually followers of Christ who, I would use the term, they're kind of orphan-spirited believers. Orphan-spirited. Because despite being believers, they've not yet gained a revelation of their adoption. So you can be a Christian, but you haven't realized yet that you have a place where you belong in the family of God. You can know Jesus is your Savior and you're going to be in heaven with Him, but you still feel disconnected from the rest of the people of God. You don't sense this is where my family is. And that kind of orphan-spirited believer, they, they haven't really seen the Father heart of God. They often end up very busy with ministry because they're still trying to impress God with their works. Or they never consistent in attending the local church gathering because they don't appreciate the family of God because they don't yet feel truly part of it. And so we've seen Christians who are spiritually hurt and they drift from church to church to church, but the answer would be if they understood adoption, if they understood belonging, if they understood their place in the family of God. They don't know the Father heart of God or they have a diminished understanding of it. They don't feel a sense of belonging in the family of God. They sit at odds with the church and especially with leaders and authority. They live on the veranda. They don't realize they have a place at the table. There are Christians like that. And when you find them, what you need to do? You need to warmly show them that they should be planted in a local church and stay and belong and be part of community and know that that's where they belong, where they're loved, where they're accepted. They have a place at the table. They don't have to live on the veranda. They self-sabotage by a kind of preemptive self-rejection. What I mean is, the person protects themselves from rejection by never committing. Now, the degree to which you hold back your commitment to God could be based on your fear that He would reject you. Have you ever thought about that? What stops you from being heart and soul radical for Jesus? What stops you from being the most passionate follower of God that you would tell all your friends about Him? Like Jesus who said, I will tell of your name to my (coughs) brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will give you praise. What's Jesus saying? My example I want to set is I'm going to brag about you to all of my brothers and I'm going to worship you boldly in front of everyone. That's the Psalm 22 quote we just read that Jesus said, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers. In fact, I will tell of my God to my brothers and I will praise Him in the midst of the assembly. Why do you feel shy to lift your hands and worship? Why are you afraid to be radical for Jesus and look like a Jesus freak or a fool? Because you fear of rejection. You fear someone will come to you and say, stop being such a weirdo. How can you be so passionate for God? But if God was truly your father, you would like Jesus say, my father is stronger than them all. My daddy is stronger than your daddy. Well, I hope your daddy is my daddy. But you hear what I'm saying? Like two children who are in the playground and they're competing and the one kid says to the other kid, my dad's stronger than your dad. Why aren't we telling people about Jesus, about God, about that? What are we afraid of? See, so 
You shield yourself, you protect yourself from rejection by never committing. You can't be rejected if you're never truly in. And I'm telling you, every one of us as believers should be truly in, heart and soul. Don't dip your foot into church and religion to see what it feels like. Dive in until you get carried away by the current. You, you can't hold back on God and say, I want to live a mediocre life with you. He's too extreme for that. God is like all or nothing. So there's still kind of slavery to fear. And Jesus, by making us true brothers, makes us true sons. And He makes the adoption possible by taking away all the disqualification of our sin and failure. So Jesus comes and He takes away every disqualifier and says, I've bought for you, I've won for you, I've given you a place at the table. This is your place with me. I'm not ashamed to call you brother, sister. It's magnificent. So our place in the family is secured by Him. So we read on in Hebrews 2 verse 16. For surely it is not angels that He helps, but He helps the offspring of Abraham. See, we needed this help. The offspring of Abraham are the, are the, he's the father of our faith. So we as Christians are, he was the one that was the beginning of like this understanding of God. God called him, he announced the gospel to Abraham. Abraham walked with God by faith. And so we are the offspring of Abraham. Just in case you thought that meant you had to be a Jewish person. No, no, we're, we're by faith are his offspring. We are the nations that are blessed through Abraham's seed. So, for surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself was has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. As a human, Christ experienced suffering, the suffering of temptation. And in suffering there was temptation too. He understands the human experience fully. He has experienced it. He's well positioned to help those who are being tempted. He shows the way to victory, but not only that, he brings the power for victory. So when it comes to Jesus and his suffering and the temptation, the temptation was to avoid the suffering. The temptation would have been there to not go through the cross. Many other temptations under suffering. When you're hungry, you're tempted to become angry. That's what we call it, angry hungry. You, you get grumpy. Jesus could have become angry and turned stones into bread. He could have become uh, proud and said, yes, I want the worship without the sacrifice. I'll just take it from the devil. But then the devil would be our master to this day. So Jesus was tempted in his suffering because there's this, there's this temptation during suffering to, to find a way out. His suffering was worse because he couldn't sin. So he couldn't even give in to temptation. But he suffered on earth, hunger, thirst, tiredness, persecution. He suffered temptation, he suffered for our sins, and he suffered the full price of death. 
He suffered the rejection of God and the rejection of man. He could be on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that he could win for us a position where we would never have to be there. We would never have to be forsaken by God because we would never have our sins on us again judged and punished. Jesus took them. He's the only one who's done that. And Isaiah paints this picture of Jesus as his suffering servant. And if you understand this, he didn't just imagine it. God in his omniscience, he could have experienced suffering without having been human. He could have said, I, I, I know what that's like. But he actually became a human and that caused him to have to suffer. So, Isaiah 53 says, Who has believed what he, he has heard from us? This is reading from verse 1. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. We all, like all we like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for this generation who considered, who considered that he was cut off, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Isn't it amazing how scripture was fulfilled when Jesus was buried? He was buried in the rich man's grave. And there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's me, he was, Isaiah was speaking about, just so you know. I'm one of those that Jesus has made to be accounted as righteous. Trust me, I'm not a righteous man inherently. This is not that I'm good. God is so good that he sent Jesus to take my sin and give me his righteousness. And I am now accounted righteous because of Jesus. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. So here my summary conclusion of this passage of scripture. Human salvation requires two things, the removal of sin and the defeat of death. Two things we need. We need the removal of sin and we need the defeat of death. Both the removal of sin and the defeat of death are necessary. And this, when done, this salvation finds its fulfillment 
in entering eternally into God's precious and glorious presence as the exalted Jesus has already done. So we see Jesus is our high priest who removes sin. He sanctifies us. That's what verse 11 of Hebrews chapter 2 says. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy have the same father. They come from the same family. So we have one who makes us holy, Jesus. So he's our high priest who has adequately done the job of removing the sin. Completely, perfectly taken away sin. Perfect high priest. He takes care of the problem of sin. And the defeat of death. So that's the other one. Jesus is the pioneer and author of our salvation who overcomes death for us. In dying and rising from the grave, He has taken away the curse of death. And now we see, we can say, O death, where is your sting? We sing it, grave, where is your victory? He's alive. So Jesus, as the captain of our salvation, when the writer to the Hebrews describes Him, it says it was fitting that the author or the captain the pioneer of our salvation should suffer. That word that says he's the, 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 the captain or the pioneer of our salvation has two meanings. It has one meaning that he could be the head or the leader. It has another meaning that says he is the author and the origin, the source. And Jesus is both of those. He's the, he's the, the, the priest who atones for sin, who makes the way open. He leads us to God. He deals with sin. But he's also the king who conquers death and, rise, and the devil and destroys all of the forces of darkness and overcomes death and comes out of the grave alive after death and goes into glory ahead of us. In laying down his own life, he is therefore the source of salvation. So he's both the, he's both the one who, who leads, who, dis, who, who declares it, but he's also the one who provides it. He's the one who overcame death for us. That's Jesus. And that's who you should see today.